Hello, and welcome back to Ryan Stacy's Silver Screams. Back in June, when our first season concluded, I promised a new theme for our next run. So I must apologize, because we won't be covering costuming or Bram Stoker's Dracula, because this episode is a special surprise episode. Between traveling for work, prepping film shoots, and attending conventions, I've lost track of time. So I decided to return to the drawing board, pardon the pun, with that material. Costuming is one of my favorite portions of the film and theater process. So I really want to make sure that the stories I deliver to you, dear listener, are as detailed as the sketches those creations were based on. December 20th marks the 25th anniversary of the release of Scream. I felt like we should celebrate together with some more stories and tidbits from this incredible horror classic. Truthfully, I had intended on doing a five-episode run that focused on each installment of this beloved horror franchise, beginning with the original. And perhaps over time I'll get to those. Podcasting is quite an endeavor, one perhaps I took for granted when starting this show. So maybe this means we'll be breaking away from a season-to-season show structure, and maybe I'll be releasing an episode from time to time as I can complete them when I have something interesting to share with you. Back to the 25th anniversary of Scream, you know, the celebrations, they came early and they went quickly. We got the trailer for the new installment, a new 4K UHD steelbook and Blu-ray release. TV spots have been dropping left and right for the new film. Last week, I booked a private screening for me and 19 friends. It's getting closer. So let's go back and once again, look at Scream 25 years later. Sydney, these words are synonymous with Scream fans. Hell, you may not even have to be a fan or have seen the movie to recognize the phrase. 25 years later, I will still occasionally answer the phone with that phrase, and I always get an off-guarded chuckle. Perhaps this line became even more popular than Hello Clarice from The Silence of the Lambs, even though it was never once uttered in that form. This didn't happen until it was spoken in the sequel, 2001's Hannibal. We hear these words and we get chills. The TV spots for Scream 2 heavily used the scene where Sydney speaks to the real ghost face for the first time. I was so scared during those SNL commercial breaks when I saw them because that's what time they aired. I wanted to start here because I think it's an interesting phenomenon. With something so simple as one of its trademark lines. Scream became the decision maker. It was the zeitgeist of the late 90s. I discussed last season in episode 3, Scream's trendiness, so if you've not heard that episode, go back and check it out now, and then come back and revisit this one. So let's travel to the end of the 1900s, when we had the Silver Fox that was Bill Clinton as our president. Everyone was preparing for the Summer Olympics in Atlanta. And the production of Scream was still working under its original title, Scary Movie. What defines anything, even a motion picture, as an instant classic? Well, according to Urban Dictionary, an instant classic refers to something being extravagantly awesome. 
That definition could be applied to just the opening moments of Scream alone. Let's begin with the first five days of production and another wonderful quote from writer Kevin Williamson. It comes from his tribute he gave to The Hollywood Reporter when Wes Craven passed away in 2015. Let's go with Mr. Williamson back to April 1996, and we're on the set of Miramax's Scary Movie. It was raining and freezing, and we were huddled in a video village outside a remote house in Northern California while Drew Barrymore was answering a phone inside. And he pulled me aside and he explained, first ring, everything's in its proper place. But with the second ring, it's time to give the audience their first moment of dread with a slight shift in perspective. They shouldn't notice it. It needs to be subconscious at this point. So here is the director of the movie in the middle of his stressful, busy first day, giving this novice kid from Goose Creek a master class in building tension. From the first shot of Casey Becker, played by Drew Barrymore, absentmindedly answering her telephone, we know we are in store for something special. I know I hadn't seen anything like this scene before, and my experience with horror at this time was quite limited. I was only 11. By now, every diehard fan of the series knows this tidbit, but it's one worth sharing. Imagine someone else in this scene. Whom, you may ask? Well, anyone else in 1996 Hollywood. You see, it was not originally intended for the beloved baby Barrymore to be Casey Becker. She had signed to play Sidney Prescott, the project's protagonist. Before a scheduling conflict presented itself to the production, Drew Barrymore had intended to lead Scary Movie. She loved the script, finding it terrifying, and knew she had to be a part of it. Anyone who had read this script knew that it was something special, unlike anything being kicked around the horror sphere at the time. Especially after the studio Miramax Films, who was releasing the film via its Dimension Films label, had secured horror master Wes Craven to direct. In the episode where we discussed Scream last, writer Kevin Williamson's script had created a bidding war at its first weekend at market with many powerhouse studios losing out on the rights to produce to the Weinstein brothers. Yeah, those Weinstein brothers. However, with that new scheduling conflict Barrymore had, she would now only have time to play Casey Becker in the film's harrowing opening, an idea that largely Barrymore is given credit for having. She knew that by killing her off in the opener, it would leave viewers feeling isolated and unsafe because they wouldn't be expecting it. And if Drew Barrymore is dead in the first few minutes, then hell, nobody is safe in this one. That uncertainty would definitely pay off, and a new trope would be also created for the franchise that followed. So with their two big hitters, Barrymore and Craven, signed, it was time for the hunt to begin for more warm bodies. Gail Weathers. How I love thee. A true icon, and as her cameraman Kenny mutters to her back, a bitch goddess. Playing bitchy roles can be tough. If you play too many, you'll get typecast. Which is probably why casting first wanted the always dry and sardonic Janine Garofalo. In the mid-90s, Garofalo was what I remember to be as one of the it people of Hollywood. 
she would be another great get for the film as she was literally everywhere. Television shows, movies like Reality Bites, stand-up tapings, chat shows, literally everywhere. And her razor-sharp cynicism would no doubt make her the best fit for the part. On paper, anyway. The way legend tells that calls were made to Garofalo's people, but nothing came to fruition. In 1995-96, when Scary Movie was in production, Courtney Cox's star was hot. The sitcom she co-starred in, Friends, had just become the top-rated show on TV and was partway through its third season. Cox wanted to do another movie, and I'd venture to guess one that wasn't a comedy as she had just appeared in 1994's Ace Ventura Pet Detective. She'd gotten hold of the scary movie script and just knew that this was the one to do, but people were having a hard time seeing her as anything but a light comedy actress whose personality had to be just like Monica Geller, her counterpart on Friends. She proved them wrong, showing us in the end that she was Gail Weathers. Acting. Many of her later roles, post-Scream, seemed to be Gail Weathers' derivatives, characters with a sarcastic, bitchy edge and a sexy underbelly. Try as they may, they did not hold candles to Ms. Weathers. She is now a legacy character of the franchise, having survived all the way through Scream 4. Fingers crossed and praying to the horror movie gods that she is spared in the new film. And I'm sorry if you don't agree, but think about it. The Scream universe would be a very boring place without Gail Weathers. She's the moral turpentine that holds it all together. Sorry, Sid. Oh, yes. How could we forget our introduction to lovable, fucked-up Sidney Prescott, everybody's favorite little victim? Thank you, Scream 2 Cotton Weary, for that excellent descriptor of her. A lead character with a truly complex backstory, rounded arc, and tons of heart. Our initial impression of Sydney and her life would go like this. She's got the pale-stained bedroom furniture, posters, and cutouts from teen mags of the 90s. I think we all have never forgotten the Indigo Girls poster. A huge indicator Miss Prescott is all about some girl power. Being replaced by that shitty Creed poster on the Stab 3 set. Cannot wait to talk about the overabundance of meta in that movie. Sydney has two phone lines in her bedroom. One seems to be patched into her affluent home's main line. Then she has her second line, which is used for her job, as is what it was called in the 90s, a deaf typer. She's a total career woman in the making. Who better than Drew Barrymore, the penultimate young woman of the 90s, to play her? Well, it could have been 80s darling and queen of John Hughesland, Illinois, Molly Ringwald. She was writer Kevin Williams' first choice. Imagine Molly with her beautiful red hair and shiny wide eyes as Sydney. The moments of her pent-up grief over her mother's death would have been wonderful material for Ringwald to sink her teeth into. While she might have been a decent draw for Scary Movie's box office, I can't say that any of us could solidly see her as Sid. Luckily, it never happened. We instead got Nev Campbell, a Canadian star on the rise here in the States who was best known for playing Julia Salinger on TV's Party of Five. On one of the home media release's special features, Campbell talks about being trepidatious about taking a role in Scary Movie, as she'd just come off doing another teen horror film, The Craft. Again, typecasting is a real concern for actors. And with her own path in Hollywood still quite fresh, this role could be risky for Nev Campbell. 
But it was a chance to work for Wes Craven, and Drew Barrymore's involved, so there was no way this was just another horror movie. It sounds like a hammered home point, but seriously, everything about this project was lightning in a bottle. Everyone seemed to be able to just feel it. After Scream's release, many would compare this entree into Hollywood as a woman who might give reigning Scream Queen, Jamie Lee Curtis, a bloody run for her money. Nev was and is the perfect Sydney Prescott. She writes the right amount of sweetness and street smarts. She was driven, but damaged and still brokenhearted from her mother's untimely death. Her big brown eyes and freckles hold with the innocence that Williamson perhaps saw in Molly Ringwald's face. But for me, it's Sydney's laugh and smile. Nev does something really beautiful with her face that most actors cannot do when their character has to emote happiness. Her smile touches her eyes. She really lets Sydney feel more candid moments. They're incredibly sincere. When she pulls her lips back to laugh, her eyes are full of the same energy and joy. I believe her every moment whenever I have a moment with Sydney. Now let's get gay for a moment, like really gay. Like the hunt for Sydney, the rest of the casting process was intensive and very thorough. Casting director saw everybody for everyone. The last funny little casting tidbit that seems to always come up is the casting of Dewey Riley, the affable dope and sheriff's deputy. It was written for a muscle-bound himbo type, like Patrick Warburton, which makes sense when you think of the dialogue Dewey has in the film. The 25-year-old talks about how his muscle masses increase his sway with the ladies of Woodsboro. However, David Arquette is very lean and lanky. Arquette loved the part and asked to read for it after being looked at for Billy Loomis. Honestly, with him playing the part, the character is much sweeter and down-to-earth, and even if he says something delusional in reference to his non-existent muscular physique, it's cute, endearing, assault of the earth, prince of his hometown, wannabe hunk. Matthew Lillard, Skeet Ulrich, what babes of the 90s, all of my girlfriends crushed openly for Billy slash Skeet, I crushed in secret for Stu slash Matthew. I was still in the closet, obviously, so I don't think my girlfriend, Jessica, would have appreciated that information from me at the time. Their characters, before things turned bad at the Mocker House, just reminded me so much of the guys in my high school. Lovable douchebags with wicked senses of humor and insatiable sex drives. They were best friends. Their girlfriends were besties. They all hung together in a little coupled clique. They were so cool that they'd even comfortably pretend to want to, or are currently, fucking each other. Granted, Stu and Billy didn't say it outright, but again, you guys noticed it too, right? They were definitely sleeping together during all that planning of their ghost face activities. Matthew Lillard really had to have picked up on that context in his script, because just watch how he acts with his girlfriend Tatum and how he acts with and looks at Billy. He loves Billy. Stu is Billy's bossy bottom, and Zaddy Loomis likes this lusty lurid secret shared between these two friends. As young people, we often find ourselves right there alongside Stu Mocker. Queer males are often the first sexual partner for our male friends, sometimes even their first loves. We carry the secrets, bear all the shame, and do it willingly for them. Only Stu chose to add murder into that mix of secrets to shoulder. San Francisco-based actress Lynn McCree was chosen to be Maureen Prescott, Sydney's mother, who is the technical initial murder that kicked all of this off one year prior to the film's opening. Her murder 
as of this podcast's airing, has never fully depicted on screen. We, all we know of her in Scream is that she was a wife and mother and town slut. We see her pictured with her daughter. Her younger lover, 25-year-old Cotton Weary, was determined to be the culprit, although he continued to maintain his innocence from behind bars and inside the pages of Gail Weathers' upcoming tell-all book, coming soon to a bookshelf near the characters. That was Lynn's role in Scary Movie, posing for some photos with the lead actress as her mother. Little did she know she would become a horror icon in her own right, as everyone knows Lynn's Maureen Prescott. As I briefly detailed last season, the original setting of Scary Movie was the same one as most of Kevin Williamson's stories. Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey, write what you know, am I right? However, the production was going to get a nice tax credit if they kept the production within the state of California. So they moved upstate, away from Los Angeles, in favor of what is known as wine country. Santa Rosa is a quaint, idyllic town just north of San Francisco in Sonoma County. The town had the right grocery store, the perfect square with the fountain, even the surrounding streets and countryside had the perfect homes. If you look up photos of it, you'll find you've seen it many times in film and television before. Pollyanna filmed here. So did Peggy Sue Got Married, which extensively used the high school. This was the major draw for production, as the building would serve as the perfect stand-in for Woodsboro High School. They got permission. But moments before shooting was to begin, the school district got involved. They'd finally heard some specifics about Scary Movie's plot, and they were not impressed. You see, Sonoma County was still in the midst of a trial that gained national interest, the abduction and murder of 12-year-old Polly Class. Her killer was nearing the end of his trial, and Santa Rosa School District was not about inviting another story about youth murder in No Thank You Very Much. Wes Craven went back and forth with them, eventually losing permission and having to haul ass to get school sets together. The Santa Rosa Community Center was happy to welcome Craven's team, and soon, Woodsboro High School had a set, and Santa Rosa School District got a very lovely shout-out at the tale of Scream's end credits. The school snafu didn't just affect Scream, though. According to an article on Metroactive.com by David Templeton, Sonoma County took a major hit from this. In it, we learn that Wes Craven allegedly began a blacklist in Hollywood, encouraging other productions to refrain from bringing their work to Sonoma. The local film commissioner, actress and model Catherine De Prima, was to blame. Generally, De Prima explains later in her office, it's my job to make things as easy as possible for everyone involved, the producers and the community. From what I can gather on the subject, Craven and team felt abandoned by their liaison. No one got Craven on record about the blacklist, but Templeton's article on the matter would have you believe his thwarting efforts worked. When it was published in October 1999, Sonoma County had seen a major dip in projects coming there to film. This is a prime example of what happens when we do not look out for artists and favor a hive-minded moral majority. Now let's talk about the houses. I wanted to live in Woodsboro. I didn't give a shit if the townspeople seemed to be prone to either committing or avoiding murder. Honestly, my psychotic teenage self would have run willingly with Ghostface chasing me through any of those places. I wouldn't have minded. The Becker residence is a two-level ranch, complete with an in-ground pool, huge yards, and an extra-long driveway that requires the entry of a main gate at the road. It sits in the countryside of Santa Rosa, directly across the street from the same farm used in Cujo. 
It's one of my favorites in the series. I really love the enclosed dining nook that Casey passes in the breezeway between her living room and the kitchen. I adore all the glass with the ceiling-high doors and windows, perfect for a masked slasher killer to peep in and watch you as you play his cat-and-mouse game via telephone. This house isn't very far from another one used in the series. The Prescott home is massive and just screams 90s upper middle class. Everything is wallpapered and complemented with the odd semi-rustic touches, like the old telephone box on the wall. I would just like to say that my mom had one of these in our home growing up. I don't know whatever happened to it, but I thought it was the coolest thing. We also had an old rotary phone that belonged to a great-grandparent. Not only did I identify with some of Sydney's teen angst, but I also loved that I wasn't the only kid in the 90s with one of these things on the wall. No, our phone box didn't work. I do believe it was a little cabinet of sorts by the time we had it. I'm not sure. I'll have to ask mom. We don't see much of Dewey and Tatum Riley's family home. Just the cozy kitchen during breakfast. Note the actress playing Mrs. Riley is also Billy's mom from Gremlins. We see the front porch and the upper landing outside Tatum's cramped bedroom. It was common in movies and TV to see a girl's room with a couple of twin beds in it either in bunk form, maybe even a trundle, or like Tatum, a setup akin to a 1950s marital suite. Maybe I, as a Scream fan, put too much time and thought into it, but for 25 years I've wondered why her room looks that way. It is almost like that second bed that Sydney looks so at home in is actually hers. So I proffer this. That bed was probably installed because over the last year, Sydney has basically lived with the Rileys while her father is always away on business and they're not talking about Maureen's death. It would make sense that if she's there so often, Tatum's mom and dad would have installed a second bed for their honorary daughter. I am most certainly not the first person to draw this conclusion. Perhaps it's nothing. Or perhaps it's another simple but amazing touch to the fantastic work by production designer Bruce Allen Miller. Work that he'd recreate to a T in Scream 3 for those fabulous Stab 3 Return to Woodsboro sets. So now we come to my favorite location in the movie, the house on 261 Turner Lane, home of Stuart Mocker and his family. You know which house I mean. It's like the Scream House. Were any of you dear listeners fortunate enough to visit for the anniversary screening or the recent Airbnb stays with David Arquette? On the original film's commentary track, recorded during the production of one of these sequels, Wes Craven had this to say about the location. The home was built by an older couple, just as it was completed. They both died within a month of each other. It was completely abandoned and now owned by their children, who didn't quite know what to do with the place. We convinced them that it would be a great place to shoot our movie. Built on over 290 acres of farmland, the property boasted a sprawling and isolated party location. The art direction in this house is on point. The Mocker residence is warm, filled with overstuffed furniture, mahogany banisters, dried flowers everywhere. There is plenty of space to party and rage against the town's newly imposed curfew. Many rooms to disappear in, to lose your virginity in, cuddle up and watch movies, or murder your girlfriend with your garage door. Initially, we see just the lower level. When Ghostface and Sydney have their big chase through the house, we get a full tour. It's first beautifully set up by Sydney, Running out of the door, Ghostface had just slid through to attack her and Billy. As she whips around the upper level toward the main stairwell, her assailant heads her off by using the stairs off the main suite. This will be the second time that Sydney is chased upstairs 
something she memorably rags on female horror characters for doing earlier in the film. This location is important to focus on because it really set a standard for slasher films of the time. I spoke in detail in last season's episode about Scream, about what the movie did for the genre at large. Studies were making their own versions of it every other month, and most of them had one or two locations that featured giant sprawling homes full of nubile young characters fresh for that title's respective killer. Most often these homes were seen in the finales, just like what is now known as the Spring Hill Estate. As I write this episode, it's October 12th. The trailer for the new film has released today. I can't describe the sadness I'm feeling. I adored the trailer, so many wonderful glimpses at what is to come in January. I won't detail them because I know some fans are avoiding the trailer and going in blindly. I respect them immensely for that choice. I say that I am sad because we were reminded today that this is our first Wes Cravenless Scream film. For so many, he was a father figure, a mentor, and a film genius. His contributions to filmmaking were unique. Save for directing or writing some of the sequels to his best works, Wes Craven didn't repeat himself, and really he didn't have to try. He would experiment, unafraid to try different things even if his product didn't gel for everyone. It is said that this is the approach the directors of this new project are taking too. With that, I can't help but be compelled to drop my expectations and embrace the film they release. I wish more of the fandom could see that. We used to live in a time where we weren't going beyond Scream 3. A decade ago, we were teased with the start of a new trilogy that never happened. That was supposed to be it. No more Scream movies. Now we're getting a fifth film that is canon. It does not redact the sequels. Our beloved stories are still intact, folks. It might sound like a cliche note to end on, but I am nearly 36 years old. Scream has been a part of my life, my entire life. I will remain thankful they're releasing new movies as long as I'm around to see them. In the world we live in today, I'm going to stop bitching about movies and just enjoy the ones I love. These films make me happy, so you try to find your happy too. Thank you for listening to Ryan Stacey of Silver Screams. The show is written, produced, and narrated by me, Ryan Stacey, and it is edited, produced, scored, and logo designed by my co-partner at Concept Media Films, Sean Burkett. I want to give a special thanks to my guest, Roger Connors, who appeared once again as Kevin Williamson. I look forward to bringing you another great story about a classic horror movie very soon. So until then... 